0: Hey y'all, my name is Susie Forty and I'm the host of the Sex Ed series. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear first-hand experiences of sex education that made me want to talk about it in the first place. Each experience differs from the last you'll hear about the combination of awkwardness and boredom that students experienced in their sex education classes, if they had a class at all. To me, hearing snippets of my friends' sex ed experiences already felt like a recipe for disaster. And I'm not the only one. So it was really weird. Um, And I remember my classmates also thought it was really weird, just the whole
1: setup of it. It was entirely geared towards Um, you know, cisgendered people, as well as heterosexual relationships. You know, there's so many young people that aren't in school or aren't in school enough or switch from school to school um, that there's a lot of gaps to be filled.
0: I did not have any sex ed in school. Teachers talking to us and they sent home a packet um, to give to our parents to be like, can you talk about this with me? To create this series, I talked to people around my age who have had sex education in high school and middle school. I'm 22 in 2022. I chose this group because they're the closest to having the most recent version of sex education on the shelves right now. I think looking into the information about sex that the coming generation of adults is working with is crucial to our future. Most of the people I spoke with on this topic wanted their voices to be listened to but were worried about sharing their full name. You'll notice some of the sources are going by their first names and some are going by a pseudonym. This is for their protection and safety and so that we could chat freely with one another without any sort of censorship. It's important to get this information even if their full name is not shared. Also, most of my reporting is centered in the United States. The history of sex education that I'll talk about will cover other countries around the world and compare them to the US. Also, one of the episodes in this podcast will cover a few experiences of sex education outside the United States. So we will get a glimpse of those experiences in the series. Third grade, I had to write the alphabet over and over and over again for like two hours in detention because I told a, another kid what sex was because she asked me. I very much see the role of being a sex educator is kind of a constant thing, whether I have that formal organization I'm a part of or just everyday life.
2: fuck, did, like, well? yeah. did you call it head call it head? of course.
0: Yeah. It feels like the only safe space that I do have to talk about sex is with other queer people. It can be hard for me to like really like feel pleasure
1: and everything because of like how I was raised and like like it's like shamed upon to like, I feel like I'm still working through that.
0: I grew up without an education about my own sexual relationships. I had an hour in middle school discussing what it would be like when I got my period and what happens to my peers when they did as well. But in high school, I had no conversations about consent, about sexual pleasure, or about anything I really wanted to know. The teacher mentioned abstinence to us and the rest of the health course was mostly about healthy eating. I've watched my peers and myself stumble through our sexual relationships without having the knowledge we needed about consent, pleasure, LGBTQ plus sex, sexual assault, really every other aspect of sex and relationships that you can think of. Tragically, the outcome of these avoided conversations has been violence for many women, non-binary, and trans people that I know. My goal with this project is that I will even minutely disrupt this pattern of violence by listening to what young people want out of their sexual education and figuring out how this can be made into a reality. It's going to take a village, but that's where you, the listener, comes in. Take a listen to the end of the episode if you want to hear more about that. These stories need to be told, not just for education purposes, but to normalize these conversations about sex. Talking about what we know and what we don't about sex over and over and over is how we will each become the best versions of ourselves inside and outside of the bedroom. Destigmatizing this topic is crucial. The first sex podcast I ever listened to was How Come by Remy Casimir, who's a stand-up comedian from New York who made a podcast because she had never had an orgasm
1: hello everybody welcome back to how
2: come i'm so excited for this episode
0: most of what i've learned about sex pleasure queerness relationships and so much more was from that podcast which i didn't come across until my freshman year of college which was two years after i had started having sex myself my hope is that the end product will encapsulate the goals and wishes that the young students and sex educators i speak with will express to me i hope i can reach the minds of those who may have been raised in households who did not uphold these ideals so that the pattern of trauma and violence can come to an end. The reason that I'm drawn to this topic is because I feel that more sex ed could possibly lessen the amount of sexual assault that happens in this country. It's been difficult for me to find data that proves that. (laughs) But um, talking amongst people and in my own world, I feel like that's true.
1: There is a really recent broad study that came out. We've been kind of waiting for it really in this field, because when you work in this, you know that it does that.
0: That person just speaking was Heather Corinna, who is the founder of Scarlettine, which is an online sex education platform that houses an incredible collection of articles, research, and live chat rooms where any young person can talk with their team of volunteers about questions they have about sex.
1: It's, it, you know, whether it's here, the years that I was working in the abortion clinic, kind of hearing people's stories, you know, I mean, in a di- in just in day-to-day observation of people's conversations about sex and sexuality and their lives in all of the context, it's an observable fact, you know, I've been in this for 25 years, that when you hear people's stories of, of what kind of information they do and don't have. Um, what the environment has been, that they've grown up in, that they've been in, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. what kind of information everybody had or didn't have, right? Because it's not just them, you know, you can know everything, but especially too, when you're talking about something like sexual assault and other violence, if you're one person that knows everything, living in rape culture, that re- that really doesn't help you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, much everyone knows or doesn't know what kind of culture everybody's grown up in of knowledge and understanding or not you know all of these things Mm -hmm. make a difference so you see you know you see from place to place you know you see from community to community you see from person to person this is all observable you know those of us like i said who work in the field for a long time this is just it's a thing that we know right Um, but also We've been a long time saying that studies are in the works. Once once they come out, we know what they will say. And there have been a couple very, very recent things.
0: This project is dedicated to everyone who was willing to participate, those who did not get the sex education they deserved, and most of all, to all survivors of sexual assault. To all listening, I hope my passion for making this change can help fuel yours too. I called Jonathan Zimmerman for some help. He's a professor and a historian of education at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Too Hot to Handle, a global history of sex education.
2: Um, you know, because there aren't that many people who write about sex ed, Yeah. Um, I would say that I probably do maybe four or five of these a year, what I just did with you, because if somebody's writing about it, they'll probably encounter me. The problem, as I see it with sex ed is It's quite minimal, and yet we put excessive burden on it. Um, So the algebra teacher is not enjoined to change what the kids do on Saturday night. The algebra teacher is enjoined to help them understand algebra, right? The great irony, I think, of the sex ed story, Susie, is we have minimal, minimal hours devoted to it and maximal expectations. Um, uh, It's supposed to do something that nothing else in the curriculum is supposed to do, which is to, you know, affect something like as messy and inchoate, as weird as as youth sexual behavior. Um, So you know, sex is a part of the human experience, it's a part of literature, the arts, history, science, everything. And I think people should know that. Um, But I don't think that sex ed should, should, should have these behavioral aims because I don't think they're possible for school to affect in most cases. And this is why, if I may, if you turn on the radio and you hear anybody on either side of this question saying sex ed does X, like behaviorally, either on the right it makes the kids have sex or on the left, like it makes them behave in in sexually responsible ways, I think if they're talking with great certainty, you can write them off as an ideologue and a charlatan. There isn't enough sex ed to make that claim. I mean, we have little glimmers here and there of understanding, but think about it. If a kid is getting six or nine hours of school-based sex ed in a year, how could you ever isolate that as the relevant variable in sexual decision-making? It's kind of a joke, right? But I think the joke comes from these expectations, which are behavioral, and I think that's the heart of the problem.
0: In Zimmerman's book, he quotes an American school board member from 1987 who said, There's an old saying that there are only two things for certain in this world, death and taxes. A third certainly might be added, disagreement about sex education. This book is where I got a lot of my national and international research about sex education over the last century. He writes about how schools were never fully able to bring sex education into their orbit and why this was and still continues to be the case. This fact shows why it has been and will continue to be quite difficult to make any tangible changes without structural adjustment on this topic. Until then, I feel like we are left a bit up to ourselves to learn about most things sex and pleasure-oriented. This podcast serves to change this by providing answers to the questions and topics that you're curious about. All right, back to this important history. The need for sex education came about from the rapid spread of what was then called venereal disease, but we now commonly refer to as sexually transmitted diseases or infections. I'll refer to these as STIs. When people quickly became infected with all different types of STIs, the need for sex education grew. In 1902, education was not the way that folks dealt with this disease. The situation was dominated by physicians and their medical expertise of treating infection. It was difficult, though, to implement sex education effectively in any manner. The name was debated over, while terms that included the word sex or sexuality would be deemed too explicit for parents or teachers, terms used like family life education, life skills education, or population education would leave room to leave sex out altogether. Jonathan Zimmerman talked with me about the role of globalization in all of this.
2: I think one of the reasons that sex ed in schools, underlying in schools, is so limited, is that our societies are so diverse, and what that means is we have very diverse understandings of what sex and sexuality are or should be. Um, that's the real takeaway of my book: is that globalization has made school-based sex ed almost impossible. No. When when I when I delved into the globalization literature when I was working this book. I was very dissatisfied with it because it seemed to me that in most iterations, globalization means something like liberalization or cosmopolitanism. And this is what my students have learned to call like boutique multiculturalism, just the idea that if we kind of have a great glorious rainbow, right, that everyone will somehow agree with each other. This is false. And I think on sex ed, we see that especially.
0: The implementation of sex education was mostly an international movement which could never be reduced solely to the biology of the situation, even though this was quite a popular tactic at the time of early sex ed, and continues to be. The United States took the lead on the subject in the beginning of the 20th century, but faced a lot of backlash from conservatives on the subject later into the centuries. Zimmerman writes, Zimmerman writes in his book, Try as they might, though, Americans could not escape the impression that sex education had been initiated and imposed by them. Overseas critics often linked it to rock and roll music and other commercial forms of American popular culture, which were allegedly corrupting the globe with sexual filth. In 1918, John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave $145,000, that's $2.7 million in today's dollars, for sex education implementation to ASHA, the American Social Hygiene Association. This was veiled from the public, however, which supported the stigma around the topic of sex and the cruciality of being educated about it. The harshest critics of the American way of sex ed came from the communist East, where they were worried and warned that having these conversations with and amongst youth would, quote, divert youth away from their revolutionary duty. These conversations were seen as too intimate to have in a school setting and were even called, quote, pornographic nonsense aimed at the, quote, seduction of minors by a Soviet in opposition. So when schools did not teach about these things and these conversations were not voluntarily happening at home either, the curious youth were left to their own devices. Unfortunately, the people who deal with this kind of backlash back then and nowadays are the people teaching sex education in schools. Heather Corinna told me about their experience with this as the founder of Scarletine.
1: I don't think that there's really any medium and I think school sex that is even more so than mine because for me ultimately the question is um, are they going to like show up at my door with pitchforks. You know, and I've been stalked, you know, mm-hmm. but again, this can happen to school sex educators too. And the people that stalked me, you know, with one exception, weren't parents. Um, mm. But I'm so sorry. It's, you know, it's a, this is a literal, a literal occupational hazard if you get too good or too visible at this job. And that's mm. how, and it's, you know, just how it is for abortion providers. It's, I mean, like we we could go on.
0: Even in the early days of sex education, the local teacher was the target of any parental anger on this topic. Their argument was, and still somewhat is, that parents know best about the sexual health and education that their children need, and that they will take care of it. This, though, has a great possibility to leave so many in the dark. Even though my parents swear they gave me a sex talk, I still remember looking up the word sex in the huge library dictionary in grade school because my peers said it and I didn't know what the word meant. I've learned that the lives and health of teachers who speak about these topics are at huge risk of losing their jobs or even lives. Justine Angfonte, a sex-positive intersectional health educator, resigned from her job at a New York City private school after parental involvement in her Zoom lessons on, on pornography literacy and consent. After listening to all of this, It might seem close to impossible to actually have inclusive, well-rounded, and truly helpful sex education in the United States. One way to learn and grow is to hear about what we already have access to and have experienced, and to imagine the radically sex-positive education experiences we could have access to if these topics weren't so taboo. I hope you're intrigued and looking forward to hearing what everyone else has to say about this. Stay tuned for the next episodes this is a space where we want all the hard questions to be asked answered re-asked clarified etc if there's anything you want to say on this topic we want to hear it please email the sex ed series at gmail.com